Hello everyone, this is Karen Hunt, aka K.H. Majek, and I am going to record for you on this lovely evening in uh, Los Angeles, The Chinification of the Western World. This is uh, an essay that I wrote, let's see, in November 28th, 2021. All right. The Chinification of the Western World. Are you willing to sell yourself and your children to the state in order to keep everyone safe? I will never forget my 50th birthday, bathed as it was in blood. Blood on the floor, blood on the walls, blood in the bathroom sink. The day started fine. I attended a wedding at the Self-Realization Fellowship in Pacific Palisades and the reception afterwards at the couple's Calabasas home. At the ceremony, each guest received a little box and when you opened it, out came a live butterfly, so hundreds of these butterflies flew out of the boxes all at once into the air. A beautiful and somehow poignant sight. How long does a butterfly live? One month? At least they were free for that short time, hopefully. A butterfly is a delicate creature, and the outside world fraught with danger. After the wedding, a reception was held in the couple's home in Calabasas. I drove over to Panga Canyon through old Calabasas town and down a wide road to a massive gate with waterfalls on either side. I announced myself to the security guard and was let in. I continued along a winding road, past large Spanish-style homes on either side, and then through another gate and up and up a long, steep driveway until I reached the mansion nestled high in the Santa Monica Mountains. The view on every side held nothing but nature as far as the eye could see. In that serene and protected setting, it was hard to imagine that only a few miles away the less fortunate lived in the drab flatlands of the San Fernando Valley, working mundane jobs, worrying about how they would pay their rent next month or buy the drugs they were dependent upon. Make no mistake, the people living in the mansions had their worries too. The drugs, the bills. Many lived beyond their means, desperate to keep up appearances with their neighbors, falling far deeper into debt than the peasants living beneath them and with more powerful and dangerous debt collectors. The stakes, no matter who you are, can be high. The SFV, or the San Fernando Valley, is infamous as the birthplace of the porn industry. If you want to travel into darkness, take a walk there sometime. Except that no one ever walks in Los Angeles, only the homeless, whose tents you can now see piled up under bridges and along the roads. There are more than 64,000 homeless people in Los Angeles in 2020, according to a count by LAHSA, an increase of 13% from the year before. One can only imagine what it must be like now. But this was 15 years ago, and I had no idea how much worse life would become for everyone over the years. It was bad enough back then. Never one for parties or large crowds, I left the reception early and drove back down to the flats where I lived in an apartment with my two sons. I took off my finery that I, had still, that I still had from my marriage to a California real estate developer and gratefully got into bed. It was close to midnight when the phone rang. Karen, you have to come right now. Mike's got seven stab wounds. I can't get him to go to the hospital. I'm afraid he'll die. The distraught voice belonged to a struggling single mother, a heroin addict, whose son was in school with my eldest son. I knew who she was talking about, a juggalo who thought he was some kind of Christ figure out to get himself a following. He wasn't more than 19 or so, troubled, drug addicted, like so many young people in that godforsaken town. 
Nonetheless, I got dressed in some sweats and a hoodie, an outfit I preferred much more than the one I'd been wearing a few hours previously, and headed over to her apartment in Van Nuys. In those days, I traveled easily between the world of the elite in the clouds and the world of the disenfranchised on the streets. I did this often. I won't go into it here, but I explain why and how in another essay, Trouble in Paradise, which I haven't yet published here. I parked my car and walked up to the front door where the mother was waiting for me. She had her dog on a leash and said, I'm going for a walk. I just can't take it anymore. That was the last I saw of her that night. Inside, the apartment was a mess. A group of high school-aged kids sat on the sofa, staring bug-eyed at Mike, who lurched back and forth in the center of the room in an agitated manner. There were blood streaks everywhere, smeared on the walls and door and splattered on the floor. Mike had what looked like some torn sheets wrapped around his torso to cover the stab wounds. He kept babbling, refusing to go to the hospital. Why? The kids explained he was terrified that he would be sent back to prison. He would rather have died on that floor than go back to prison. It was only when he passed out, skin ashen from shock and loss of blood, that I and the kids managed to drag him into the car and onto the hospital. I later found out that if he had been left unattended much longer, he surely would have died. The knife had punctured one of his lungs, and he would have drowned in his own blood. As it turned out, the police came to interview him in the hospital, and he didn't go to jail. This time, at least, he'd done nothing wrong. He'd been attacked outside a party by someone who was offended by his juggalo tattoos. No doubt high, he, had realized what was, he hadn't realized what was happening to him until he was being stabbed. Incredibly, he had managed to walk to the safe house. I wish it had been the end of it, but it wasn't. He went on to commit a terrible crime, kidnapping a young woman and forcing her to take money out of the ATM. I don't know more about, de about the details, but he was caught and sentenced to prison for a long time. I thought of that poor woman and the terror she must have felt. Should I have left him to die? What if he had ended up killing her? I would never have forgiven myself. Years later, Mike got out of prison. I think he's still out. I pray this time he really has learned his lesson, and from what I've heard, he's doing well. The single mother got clean, and as far as I know, she is living a good life. I took in a lot of young people in those days, the artist and writer friends of my sons, the outcasts who didn't fit into the school system. I never turned anyone away. In 2018, I interviewed two young women who had spent a lot of time at my house in their teenage years. The result was two articles for Nailed magazine called The SFV Interviews, Growing Up a Girl on the Mean Streets of L.A. Suburbia. Here's Kashmir describing the San Fernando Valley. The SFV is a place that still triggers my PTSD when I return a place where I have never had a single female friend who hasn't been stalked, molested, assaulted, sexually cyberbullied, or raped. Heroin is absolutely rampant in the SFE. Ecstasy and coke are the least of your worries, and they are ever-present as well. Date rape is mundanely common, and yet women are still in constant competition with each other rather than forming a sisterhood. LA glamour is this huge priority. It is constantly strived for, while also publicly rebu rebuked. It's a show. Any parent who told their children high school wasn't a beauty pageant in the SFE lied. Kashmir spoke those words only three years ago, before things got worse, before the crime, the mental anguish, the suicides. In 2021, sex trafficking cases have surged 185% in L.A. 
On, in 2020, 600,000 Americans went missing. What happened to all those people? In San Francisco, masked criminals, as many as 80 at a time, are going on looting rampages of high-end stores. Five are dead and 48 injured after a man in an SUV plowed into a Waukesha, Wisconsin Christmas parade. And depending how you look at it, there are people, I am not among them, who even after the lying press was corrected by proof in the trial, still think Kyle Rittenhouse is a white supremacist and that vigilantes have now been given license to roam the streets, meeting out justice as they see fit. Meanwhile, BLM has been given license to destroy while the government looks away, as has Antifa. All this and more pales in comparison to the fear-mongering of the media over the COVID-19 crisis with its variants that keep on mutating into ever more virulent strains. The world really isn't safe now, not even a little bit. Not even if parents do everything right to protect their children. It will never be enough. The air is not good to breathe. Your neighbor cannot be trusted, nor your own family, because they might carry the virus into your home and give it to you. What loving parent wouldn't want to save their children from all of that? If you could be assured that your children would never be raped, never be pimped out for porn or prostitution, never be wooed into a gang, never be convinced to slam heroin into their veins so that forever after they had a demon on their back, or even if they could simply opt out of the relentless boredom of working in an office under fluorescent lights the way that you once did, wouldn't you do whatever it took to spare them all of that agony? If it meant giving up your children, mind, body, and soul to the state, wouldn't it be worth it to know they were safe? If you knew that your child could live in a world protected by the state, but the price of that protection was having them injected with an experimental drug, would you do it? If you knew that an invisible quantum dot tattoo could be used to ID your vaccinated child so that even beyond their health status, you were assured of where they were and what they were doing and that they were always topped up with whatever medication they needed, would you do it? Imagine living in a world where all the worries and responsibilities were taken from you. You no longer bought or sold, owned or rented anything. You no longer had a car. You no longer traveled by airplane. You no longer reflected on opposing points of view, nor did you discuss them with other real people. You didn't read books or explore new ideas. Thoughts of faith and hope of an afterlife were stricken from your mind. You existed in a small apartment and were given the basic necessities needed to survive. In exchange, you were allowed to earn points for good behavior. With these points, you could attain special rewards, maybe even some real meat for dinner on occasion. For those with lots of points, they could move to better lodgings, maybe accumulate more credits to spend in the metaverse. You could rest easy knowing that instead of being out on the dangerous city streets, your children were in the metaverse of their own making. No matter what happened in there, it couldn't harm them. They were well protected. It wasn't real. You do not see yourself as deprived, far from it. You are thankful for your circumstances. You are thankful because the state has convinced you that the real world is too dangerous to live in. The scientists and educators, the government officials and influencers that you trust so completely have told you so. This is all for the good of the planet and for the good of humanity. If you didn't do your part, climate change would destroy everything. Disease would ravage the human race. Individuals going rogue are what's wrong with the planet. If everyone would just comply, 
how perfect the world would be. Right now as I write this, the entire human race is being convinced of this mindset. Every successful lie has a modicum of truth. Yes, the world is dangerous, but we have always lived by faith in the messy world, taking our chances when we crossed the road, born our children in pain, and prayed they would be okay, watched them fall and get up again, learn, and sometimes not. But now the meaning of life has been turned upside down. The risks far outweigh the rewards. Allow the state to take care of you so you never again have to worry about unpredictability. Let your child play on their technological devices. That is where you can be sure they are safe. Yet, what if the web that we lose ourselves in is just as bad or maybe even worse than anything reality could throw our way? Because beneath the web, like beneath everything, is a dark web and the deep web where all kinds of nightmares live that you would never imagine happening to your children in real life. Like everything else, where the San Fernando Valley used to be the center of the real porn industry, it has moved into the virtual realm, where there has been a rapid increase in child sex tourism. It's so much easier to fulfill every fantasy imaginable when there are no consequences. Offenders can make instant anonymous contact with pimps or potential victims and meet them in virtual spaces. Just as parents didn't have a clue what their children encountered when they walked out the door, they now don't have a clue what their children are exposed to or what they are participating in within the virtual world. A King's College London study illustrated the scope of this problem, scanning a series of websites accessible through Tor, or the Onion Router. Tor is a free and open source software for enabling anonymous communication consisting of more than 6,000 relays for concealing a user's location and usage from anyone conducting network surveillance or traffic analysis. The King's College study identified 1,547 out of 2,723 live sites that were classified as containing illicit content. The most common contents of these websites included drugs, illicit finance, and pornography involving violence, children, and animals. Christian Teres, member of the European Parliament representing Romania, calls all of this, all of this that I have described here, the Chinification of Europe. I would go further and call it the Chinification of the Western world, because China is on the forefront and it seems everyone else is eagerly following in their footprints. Clearly, says Christian Teres, we are witnessing right now the Chinification of Europe because we see what is happening in China with a social credit score where the government is monitoring and surveilling all the people from the beginning to end, everything that they do, everywhere they walk, they control everything and they watch everything. This is an example of a tyranny when the government knows everything about you, where you go, what you eat, where you enter. That's a tyrannical system. And we've seen this system being implemented right now under the leadership of the European Union. The green certificate was just the first step. Teres goes on to say something really important. We don't live in a democracy. We live in what is called a constitutional democracy. There are certain fundamental rights. They are individual. They are personal. No one can vote, for example, to chop one of your hands off. Why not? If you're right-handed or left-handed and you have a higher risk of stabbing someone, let's chop off everyone's hand to make sure that everybody is safe. Is this the kind of society we want? 
that is the reason why there are certain fundamental rights that are individual and personal. And one of such rights is the integrity of the body. No one outside of you can ever vote for you to inject something, for you to eat something, for you to do something with your body. It should be solely your will and your wish what to do with your body. It's as simple as that. If we don't understand this basic principle, we don't understand how the Western world was developed, because this is what is happening right now in China, for example, where prisoners, for example, you know, body parts and organs are taken away from them to be given to the communist bureaucrats. Is that the kind of Europe that we want? I don't believe so. End of quote. And yet this is the kind of Europe, the kind of world we are almost assuredly going to have unless we stop it now. And although Teres says it is communist bureaucrats who benefit from the trafficking of humans and their individual body parts, the reality is that it is the elite from both the East and the West who benefit. In order to understand what is happening to us, this Chinification of the Western world, we can take a small step back in time and learn about the ancient spiritual practice of the Falun Gong. As a martial artist myself, for the past 30 years, this practice is close to my heart. It is not a practice that I have done, but I understand it based on my own experience as a martial artist. Since 1949, the, communist, the Chinese Communist Party, CCP, has imposed communist ideals on the Chinese people. This indoctrination replaced the deeply rooted spiritual Chinese culture with an ideology of atheism, materialism, and cruelty, teaching people to find joy in the struggle against the heavens against nature, and against each other. Falun Gong, on the other hand, combines meditation and gentle exercises, similar to Tai Chi, with a moral philosophy based on truthfulness, compassion, and tolerance, or in Chinese, Zhen Shan Ren. Forgive my pronunciation. Just as followers of Christianity, Islam, Judaism, or any other faith, Falun Gong practitioners aspire to live by these principles in their daily lives. This process is known as Qigong. After the Cultural Revolution, people sought a return to the old ways, and Falun Gong grew in popularity. In 1998, a study conducted by China's State Sports Commission estimated that over 70 million persons were practicing Falun Gong, and 100 million were learning about it through various programs. This was a bigger percentage than were learning about than belonged to the Communist Party, and it was perceived as a huge threat. In July 1999, Jiang Zemin then leader of the CCP outlawed and vilified Falun Gong and thus began a persecution of its followers that has lasted more than 20 years. China has always been at the forefront in medical and scientific experimentation. This in and of itself isn't a bad thing. However, if you do not believe in the sanctity of human life, then you have no conscience about cutting people up into pieces and examining them for scientific research or using their body parts for the benefit of the elite and making a profit from it. China had already been experimenting on prisoners, removing organs against their will for organ transplants. They now had hundreds of thousands of prisoners of conscience to exploit as well. During my research for this essay, I read story after horrific story of those who survived abduction and torture. In the New York Post article, Falun Gong practitioner Jin Tao Liu 
forgive my my Chinese pronunciation, it's terrible, 36, describes how he was arrested without charge or conviction and imprisoned for more than two years over his spiritual beliefs in 2006. Liu told of strange health checks performed on him and others behind bars. I was placed in a room where the rest of the occupants were all drug offenders, Liu told news.com AU. Once, when they were beating me, they have all sorts of methods, they were pinning me down and striking my back with fists and legs. When an old drug offender walked inside the room and warned them not to damage my organs when they were beating me, Liu soon realized something far more sinister than he had ever imagined possible was going on. I had heard something about organ harvesting, but even though I was being detained and beaten, at first I thought it was too brutal to believe, he said. Emotionally, I thought maybe these people who yelled not to hurt my organs just didn't want me to die. Then my logic told me, why would these people care about my life? Why wouldn't they say then, don't hurt this person, not don't hurt his organs? I just felt it was a strange thing that they cared about my organs rather than my person. Liu was fortunate enough to get out. Some of his political prisoner friends were pulled from their cells by guards and never returned. In the Kilgarmata's 2006-2007 investigative report, allegations emerged that many Falun Gong practitioners have been killed to supply China's organ transplant industry. An initial investigation stated the source of 41,500 transplants for the six-year period 2000 to 2005 is unexplained and concluded that there has been and continues today to be a large scale organ seizure from unwilling Falun Gong practitioners. Doctors Against Forced Organ Harvesting performs systematic research into the reports of state-sanctioned forced organ harvesting in China from prisoners of conscience, not only Falun Gong, but more recently the persecution, mass incarceration, and medical testing of Uyghurs and others of Islamic and Christian faith. In many articles I read while doing this research, leaders in the West hasten to say that they are revolted by these practices. But this is surely a lie for many. The elite in the West are no different from the elite anywhere else. While loudly decrying the practice, they line up for these organs, coining the phrase transplant tourism. And the closer we move towards a Chinification of the Western world, the more this mindset will become acceptable and hidden no longer. Hypocrisy runs deep in the West, as I mentioned in my essays about supposed clean energy and gain-of-function research. When these practices were deemed unethical or in violation of human rights in the West, they were simply moved to China, where no such restrictions applied. Under cover of self-righteous hand-wringing, oh, we would never do that here, billions of dollars are promised, and the rich grow richer through the enslavement of those they deem dispensable. We are deep into this darkness. But there is still at least one barrier left. We, the people, still believe, as Christian Terra says, that the fundamental rights of the individual are so sanct. And yet, as he warns, we are well on the way to giving up these through these COVID passports. Why are these passports so important? It clearly isn't about our health. They do nothing to protect us. It is because the, the elite are in trouble. The financial system is in collapse. They do not want to give up their positions of power. They will never give them up. Melissa Kuma A, 
a financial investor from Northern Ireland, explains that in order to keep the game going, they must do a complete financial reset because the system has failed. From 1971 onwards, we have been in a debt-based economy, and it has now collapsed under its own weight. The only solution is to transition to a credit system where printed money becomes obsolete. While we have been locked in our homes, terrified of what monsters await us in the outside world, the elite have been busy buying up all the actual assets. A central bank digital currency is the end game, along with totalitarian control. In order to bring in a central bank digital currency, you need a digital ID. In order to bring in a digital ID, you need these COVID passports under the guise of health and safety. They must get everyone to accept these digital passports. From there, it is a short step to quantum tattoos, and from that point onwards, there will be no going back. We will have been sold as slaves, completely trafficked. It is anticipated that 38% of U.S. jobs will be replaced by robots, robots and artificial intelligence by the early 2030s. What will happen to all those people who have lost their jobs? Will they be given a universal basic income in exchange for sitting at home? They will become useless except as products themselves. After all, don't they have livers, hearts, hair, and skin? Don't they have minds to be stolen and put into the AI who are replacing them? But more than anything, it is the minds and the fresh meat of our children that they are after. Our children, having grown up in this brave new world, will be more compliant than we ever were. They will be the perfect commodities. I cannot help but think of the thousands upon thousands of young people who have crossed over our southern borders in these past few months. Imagine the terror that they experienced in their long journeys, the terrible things that happened to them, the similarities between their experiences and that of the Falun Gong, or anyone else who is being softened up by torture in preparation for brainwashing is beyond tragic. Once again, the authorities in the United States can pretend they are the saviors, putting the blame of the torture on others. Where have all the children gone? They were secretly put on planes and taken to undisclosed locations. In an op-ed published by the Tennessee Star, Senator Marsha Blackburn wrote, It's important to realize that all this was happening in the dead of night, without the knowledge of any Tennessee elected officials or community leaders. There was no transparency, no coordination, and no notice whatsoever. This should worry you, not only because Health and Human Services circumvented state authorities, but because the agency itself has a history of operating under a veil of secrecy when it concerns their handling of migrant children. Do you trust the government to take care of these migrant children without some nefarious agenda? No? Then how can you trust them with your own children? In Australia, Aboriginals who have been exposed to COVID are being housed in quarantine camps. They are building quarantine camps for tourists, apparently. But who will want to visit Australia and go to a quarantine camp? That's crazy. Under cover of health and safety, a multitude of atrocities can be committed in secret upon the people who are housed in these facilities. I just finished watching Squid Game, and I couldn't take my eyes away. Long after the last episode ended, I kept thinking about it. The people in the series are desperate players in a game of life and death, performing for the pleasure of the wealthy elite who come to watch them suffer and die. But why do the elite take such delight in the suffering of those beneath them? Why do they hate the common man? Because of our spirit. It is the human spirit that they hate. 
The elite think that through torture and fear they can destroy our spirits, and often they can. But there is always that one person who cannot be broken. These are the ones who inspire the rest of us to rise above our circumstances and remember that we are God's creation. We must not let our spirits die. If they cannot break us with torment, they will lure us with promises of wealth and fame. One night a few years ago, I went to dinner at the home of a successful Hollywood composer. I knew he was kind of interested in me, and I wanted to see if I might be interested in him. He had a beautiful house, and he cooked a delicious meal. We had a stimulating conversation. What was there not to like? After dinner, we sat in a room with a large TV screen, and he put on a film. It was about Scientology. Apparently, this was the next step in his courtship plan. I watched the film with some curiosity. I am always up to learn something new, even when I know it isn't for me. Afterwards, he asked what I thought of the film. When I didn't express the required enthusiasm, he made it clear that if we were to proceed any further, I would need to make a commitment to at least learn about Scientology. Well, that was the end of that. I never went back for another meal. A while later, he got married, and I can only assume that she had done what she was told in order to gain her elevated status. I had absolutely no interest in becoming a Scientologist, no matter what doors it might open for me. I already knew, just as everyone in Hollywood knows, that in order to make it in Tinseltown, you must sell your soul. You must be willing to do humiliating and terrible things. It is all part of the game. To think that you can ever be safe by giving up your autonomy is the evilest and the most ridiculous of lies. To happily submit to servitude, to give up your own children as sacrifices for experimentation, how can this be possible? And yet the entire human race seems to be rushing irrationally towards this goal. Yes, the world is dangerous, but at least we are free to make mistakes and learn from them. How else will we, the people, ever grow into something better than we were before? I love the book Shantaram. The beginning is pure magic and adventure, how it draws you in. This is the first paragraph of the book. It took me a long time and most of the world to learn what I know about love and fate and the choices we make, but the heart of it came to me in one instant while I was chained to a wall and being tortured. I realized somehow through the screaming in my mind that even in that shackled, bloody helplessness, I was still free, free to hate the men who were torturing me or to forgive them. It doesn't sound like much, I know, but in the flinch and the bite of the chain, when it's all you've got, that freedom is a universe of possibility. And the choice you make between hating and forgiving can become the story of your life. The book is a fictionalized account of the author Gregory David Roberts' own life. As well as the character in the book, he was a drug addict who escaped from an Australian prison and made his way to India. In the end, he gets tired of running and gives himself up to the authorities and serves the rest of his prison sentence. Yes, I love that book, but I think I love the story of how Roberts wrote it even more. It was while serving the rest of his prison sentence that he started to write Shantaram. He had a guard who hated and tormented him, berating him while he tried to write. When he finally finished the first draft, the guard took it and threw it away. So Roberts wrote a second draft. The guard tore it up and threw it away too. When Roberts got out of prison, he wrote a third draft, and that was what became the worldwide bestseller. 
One day, when Roberts was signing books for fans, he looked up to find the guard holding out one of the books for him to sign. Could you please forgive me? asked the guard. Roberts replied that to the contrary, he wanted to thank him. The guard was shocked. How could that be? Well, said Roberts, if it hadn't been for you throwing those two drafts away, I would never have written that final perfect draft. It is only through walking through the fire that our highest goals can be achieved. This is the best of life. At the end of the series Squid Game, the two main characters, who happen to have been friends since childhood, face off in a knife fight. One of them must kill the other in order to win the prize of wealth that they have so brutally struggled to attain. The one man has somehow managed to hang on to his soul throughout the horrors of the games that have killed off all the other contestants except for these two. In fact, he has become a better person because of it. On the other hand, his old friend has cheated, lied, and even killed a young woman in cold blood in order to reach the finals. It would seem his soul has been destroyed. The man who still maintains his soul is filled with hatred for his rival. In his rage, he overpowers him. The moment comes when he must kill his old friend. He raises his knife and plunges it down into the ground to the side of the man's face. He cannot kill his friend. The hatred leaves him, and he walks away in disgust and misery from everything he had fought so hard to gain. The man who lied and cheated lies groveling on the ground, pleading with his friend to kill him. When he realizes his pleas will never be answered, he plunges the knife into his own neck in a final act of honor. Mesmerized, the elite have been watching this drama play out before them. The ending is not what they wanted to see. They wanted hatred to consume and destroy the two men as it had consumed and destroyed them. They don't understand the choices the two men have made. They have forgotten what it means to choose love and forgiveness over greed and power. In his book, The History of Chinese Thought, the historian Qian Mu makes the case for traditional Chinese culture as the only way to maintain the human spirit and grow in dignity. In contrast, he talks about the spread of communism in China as the walking dead with bones and flesh. Despite their wealth and finery, the elite in the Squid Game are exposed as nothing more than bones and flesh. They are the walking dead. In contrast, the two men in the finals refuse to give up the one thing that is more important than all the wealth and power in the world, their souls. Should I have allowed that young man to die? all those years ago as he lay on the floor in the pool of his own blood? No, absolutely not. If I had done that, I would have lost my soul. Fly free, little butterfly. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Mark eight thirty six. And thank you so much for listening.